At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. podcast the podcast for cryptids and their keepers <laughs> that's us and if you're listening it's you too i'm alex flanagan and i'm addison peacock and we are here today with a special guest and the guest is knowledge oh, we, we my God. don't have any special guests but addison did bring a cryptid presumably I think we're always pretty special but oh yeah yeah so this is a very actually this is a very special episode um i wanted to wait long enough so that you would forget the information that you learned because this is a revisit <gasps> to something that was a lost episode. Oh, I know what this is. Keeper. Oh, well, don't say it. Um, a while back, I think it was meant to be like episode 20 or something. It was early. It was very early. Yeah. And it was because we weren't great at um, uh, sort of uh, anticipating Audacity's issues yet. Uh, and is no, it like Audacity is a fickle mistress. Yeah, the whole episode was like swallowed by Audacity. And so it was never released. Just gobbled right up. So I would like to, I wanted to wait long enough that you would forget the particulars of this. Of this oh, I guy. remember no particulars. I okay, just remember good. having a very good time and then losing all of that very good time. Yeah. So here's the thing. Do you like worms? <laughs> hey, kids. Do you like worms? I love worms specifically because at any given moment when anybody mentions the word worms, I am thinking about Brian David Gilbert and specifically dances moving. So yes. Oh, that's fair. Yes. See, um, when I hear the word worms, I think about one particular thing, and that is the Goosebumps book and accompanying television show, Go Eat Worms, uh, in which a young boy does horrible experiments on worms and then they seek revenge on him by slowly like invading his life. They make their way into his food, his bed, his clothes. It is a really disturbing story. That is really um, wild, and, and I then don't a, love it. And then a giant worm comes out of the earth at the end. It's like the mother worm, like the queen worm. It's oh, wild. Um, that is how worms So anyway. Work. I read a story when I was in elementary school about, I think it was a boy. It was like some kid. A kid, a child. Basically, who like lost a bet or like was making a bet and had to like eat a worm a day for like 50 days or something. I don't Ew. remember any of the particulars of this. But it's like basically his... Just being, like, a weird, plucky little kid and, like, going Eating through the worms. process of, like, trying to eat a worm a different, like, and make it, like, you know, somehow palatable to himself. It was weird. It wasn't, like, a horror book or anything. It was just, like, some book about kids being kids. That's just, you know, animal cruelty for fun and play. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't awesome. <laughs> but, like, I mean, in fairness, I guess worms get eaten every day. They do. Um, uh, A worm a day keeps the sadness I have away. one more fun story about worms. Do okay, do it. I do want to hear it. When I was in... um. Shoot, I think it was early high school. I don't think it was late middle school. It was either mm-hmm. late middle school or early high school. Um, I rescued a baby bird. And it wasn't, like, intentional. I wasn't like, I'm going to go rescue a baby bird today. Because, you know, there are people who are, like, on the lookout to be animal saviors and mm-hmm. actually end up putting animals in more danger than they were previously to begin with. But it was a bird who, um, at this point, was, like, a, a still a, a baby, a very baby bird, and had been knocked out of its nest, presumably, and was being sort of stalked and tormented around our patio by the neighbor cat. Oh, no. And so I was like, this will not do. And I, you know, snatched up the baby bird. And unfortunately, you know, for the baby bird to have been out of the nest already anyway, there was some problem with the baby bird that I would not have been able to rescue it mm. from. Um, which is, you know, tragically no fault of mine. But for about a week, this baby bird, like, 
lived with me and um <laughs> and was like a very lovely little companion. I named it Flicky. Aww. And Flicky um actually like got really excited when I would come home from school and Flicky rode on my shoulder sometimes. Oh I would my like God. walk around and Flicky would just be like hanging out on my shoulder. Oh my god. Um super sweet. But like I I think I was in early high school. And anyway, I like <laughs> would wake up in the morning so mom's like it's fine if you want to like, you know, hospice this baby bird, but like you are going to have to like help take care of this baby bird, obviously. I'm like, yeah, totally. So I woke up every morning before school and mind you, I left for the bus stop at like 530 um, and would dig up worms from our backyard so that there was stuff for this baby bird to eat. Oh my goodness. Because we did feed it baby bird formula at mm. first, but he also like ate worms. You know, baby birds grow pretty quickly in their mm. early stages of life and he needed that good worm sustenance. But anyway, mm. that was just my story of the week that I kept a baby bird and, yeah. and dug up worms every morning in the backyard. That's noble. Thank you. You're welcome. So in R.L. Stein's Go Eat Worms, because uh, it's a children's book, and I don't know if you all are aware of this, but in children's books, often like the bullies or the characters that are doing teasing have like the weakest, saddest insults in the whole wide world. Oh, always. So there's a sequence in the TV episode, I don't know if it's in the book as well, where there are children just like mercilessly chanting at our protagonist the phrase worms on the brain. They're just like, worms on the brain, worms on the brain. And um, that's insane. So I would like to say that I have worms on the brain. Oh, you today. have worms on the brain. One today. specific kind of worm today, in particular, a particularly hardcore variety of worm. I would like to talk to you today about the Mongolian death worm. Was that supposed to be the old Batman? <laughs> riff because oh no <laughs> i was just doing electric guitar oh it was good i mean i like it no, 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 no. there the you mongolian go. death worm no that's munch squad okay no um <laughs> um but anyway the mongolian death worm <laughs> every time you say it i'm just gonna be over here doing like a bill and ted's excellent adventure like air riff like it's so it's wild stallions yeah it's so hardcore and you're not hardcore unless you live hardcore. And folks, the Mongolian death worm is way hardcore. Lives hardcore, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I don't think it gets much more hardcore than a two to seven foot long worm that dwells in the desert and spits poison. That would do it, yeah. And according to some sources, has just full blown like X-Men style electricity powers. Hell yeah. I can just electrocute you. Yes, high level mutant worm. It's a high level mutant worm. Now I should specify that it is referred to as a worm. It's likely that if the Mongolian death worm exists, and it does, of course, that it is not a worm as we know worms to be. I should of, hope not. I mean, like you think worm and you think they're specifically, they're very slimy, they're mushy creatures, they're soft. And they require a lot of moisture. Obviously, where this is meant to dwell is in the desert. There's mm -hmm. not a lot of moisture for a worm to survive. Uh, if the Mongolian deathworm exists, and for the purposes of the show, we'll say, sure, it does. It is probably some sort of snake or skink or something mm, along okay. those lines. It might be something I'll talk about a little later called a worm skink. Okay. Oh, and a worm skink. Or um, a worm snake, which are snakes that look like worms. Wow, what a surprise. This has like a very Dune vibe to it, doesn't oh, it? Dune, um, Tremors, mm -hmm. um, these pop up throughout storytelling. Uh, there's an arc of the Adventure Zone balance campaign that has giant worms in it. Mm-hmm. Pretty much a giant desert-dwelling worm. They pop up throughout pop culture. Mm -hmm. And these 
fellows in particular, uh, have been written about quite a lot. I am able to sort of spitball a little bit just off the cuff here and talk about them without referring directly to my sources, which I'll get into in a second, and say that their name, which I will just for the sake of all of our listeners not attempt to pronounce, <laughs> uh, I'm going to refer to it as the Mongolian deathworm. It's given name, like the name by which it is originally known in the parts of the world where it is most often spotted or discussed. Uh, it translates loosely to intestine worm, which is troubling. Oh. Um, and it's because it is red. <laughs> Two bad words that sound worse together. <laughs> hmm. uh, intestine worm sounds like a worm that lives in your intestines, which is also bad. Mm-hmm. But this is yeah. a worm that looks like an intestine. Uh, if you have a Mongolian death worm living in your intestine, you've been we dead. have bigger problems. No, you've been dead for quite some time. Um, so, <laughs> or, I hate to be the one to break this to you. <laughs> or maybe he's your special little friend. Oh. And you have a beautiful symbiotic relationship, and he gives you electricity powers. There's a lot of worm content like that, too. Um, there is. Yeah, like Stargate. Stargate has mm-hmm. the aliens with the with the worms inside oh, them. I don't Teal'c like is one of those. I yeah. actually can't talk about this for too long because I'm going to get Oh, I'm upset. sorry. This it's is going to okay. be a 10-minute episode. No, I can't talk about parasitic worms. Oh, okay. I'm like, oh, okay, my body's seizing up. Okay, so <laughs> referred to as an intestine worm, they're red in color. Uh, like I said, around from two to seven feet in length. Mm-hmm. They're pretty big boys. Pretty pretty large, yeah. Um, and if you feel the sand beneath your feet begin to stir, if you feel a rumbling beneath you, uh, then you know that something not so great is coming. Um, and so I'd like to <laughs> Very talk more. Poetic. Uh, I'd like to talk more about the specifics of the Mongolian deathworm. My brain just remembered. There's an episode of um, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer where one of the cre- where the creature being discussed. Which is probably, it might be Mongolian Deathworm inspired too, but is, um, the, the phrase that keeps popping up is from beneath you it devours. Um, so that's kind of the Mongolian like a Deathworm. Sarlacc pit. I'm just gonna keep throwing out pop culture references that are less and less related to the Mongolian Deathworm. I was as gonna time say, the on. Sarlacc pit is, is a pit. Yes. It's a pit full of teeth. Yes. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> Um, like I said, they're just going to get farther and farther from, like, I already touched Dune, and that's as close as we were going to get, so the rest of this episode is just going to be me eventually mm-hmm. getting to completely unrelated. So the Mongolian death worm is native to the Gobi Desert. Okay. That is its favored dwelling place. Um, it is, like I said, two to seven feet long, which is a pretty large variation that makes me very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It hunts by covering its prey in its corrosive yellow saliva, which is either poisonous or acidic, depending on how you, uh, on what you find about it. Um, when it attacks, it raises its body out of the sand and inflates until it explodes, releasing the poison all over its Hi, victim. what? It, like, expands, because it's like... Until it like explodes. Like it's going to a big loogie. Until it explodes? I mean, like, the worm doesn't explode. It, like... Okay, because that's what I was getting no, here. Like, it, like, fills up its cheeks with venom and then, like... Okay. Covers you in its juices. Yeah, no, that's... Okay, bad, bad. No, you <laughs> stop that. Um, but that's about what I would expect. But when you said the worm explodes... I'm sorry, I, was, I shouldn't have a... Um, is that your phrasing or theirs? No, that was crypt- the cryptids wiki's phrasing. The and explodes. you're sure it doesn't explode, explode? I would think that the worm would then die. Yeah, that's what I would think too, which is why I was thinking. So then, it how's it supposed to eat its food? I, I if don't it's know. Dead. So here's the thing. So here's Look, the not, thing. Not all cryptids are very talented at their jobs. Okay. Okay, that's fair. So here's the thing: its primary prey is livestock and people. Uh huh. I mean, who's to say those aren't the same for the Mongolian deathworm? For the Mongolian deathworm. Um. Its first sighting is placed at approximately one thousand years ago. So this has. 
cool. This is one of those that I'm not really sure if that actually is true mm-hmm. or if that's just people saying this story's been around for a long time. Right. But you yeah. do see it pop up on tourism sites for Mongolia. You do see it pop up or for the region. You see it pop up. Some of the articles I found were on uh, Indian tourism websites mm-hmm. that were like, learn about the Mongolian death worm. Um, so at the very least, um, people like from not just the Western cryptozoological circles are trying to, at the very least, cash in on the story. Okay, cool. So uh, whether it actually is as ancient of a story, like you keep finding in the, what are English language sources that I keep reading, I keep finding like the native people of the Gobi Desert have been talking about the worm for right, thousands yeah. of years. And it's like... Which is almost always inevitably going to be kind of like gross fetishism on the part yeah. of yeah it, or just at the very least an attempt to give credence to your story right being of like course. it's been around forever with so, these native people yeah and like, yeah exactly um, but anyway but what you're saying is that like at least there is some ownership of this story in the yes. hands of those people in okay. the actual like region you see the see it pop up okay cool almost in like an encouraging tourism kind of way oh yeah definitely i mean like there are tons of West Virginian tourism oh, yeah. that do the same. Not with the Mongolian death worm, obviously. I mean, no, but. he lives in the desert. Yeah. There are some really f- troubling artistic renderings of it. Most of the time, it looks kind of segmented the way worms are, uh-huh. but it's it's very thick around, and the segments are sort of puffy. Okay. Um, and then its mouth looks like the mouth of a mo- like um of a lamprey. Okay. So like a row of kind of suctiony, like yep, suction, yep. sort of suctiony with like teethers, mm-hmm. little teethers in there, little teethy guys. Um, it's troubling, and I don't like it. Can I see, yes, ah, uh, yeah. And I don't like to look at the artistic renderings of these things because I feel like I've talked about this on the show before. But one of my absolute made like greatest phobias, probably surpassing my phobia of spiders, is leeches. Mm, and good. actually, I have trouble interacting with just straight up regular earthworms because they remind me of leeches, even though I know that they do not bear me any ill will or have the capacity to <laughs> suck my blood. Right. Like I know that an earthworm can't suck my blood. Like what are they gonna do? They have no mouth and they must scream. But <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I can't even look at the like wiggly nature of the way that they move and ambulate themselves because this, this fear has been around for quite a while for me, but particularly was solidified when I was about eight years old and I read, mm-hmm. I've mentioned before on the show, there were these books that you could get in mail order that were, there was one on ghosts, one on vampires and one on aliens. And they were just called like vampires, ghosts, uh-huh. and aliens. And sure. their covers looked like the cover of a magazine, but they were hardcover books. And my vampires one had a section on real life vampires. Where, like, so, like, animals that are vampiric. Right, yeah. So I read about, like, the vampire bat, which I still like very much. And the vampire bat didn't scare me. It was, like, these feed on cattle and they drink an egg cup full of blood. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. cool, these are cute. They look like mice. And then I read about mosquitoes, which I don't like. Read about ticks, which I'm also very afraid of. But that's... Oh, yeah. And then I read about leeches. And in the section on leeches, there was a picture of the Amazonian horse leech, which can grow up to three feet in length. And it was a photograph of the leech's sucker on the lens of the camera. Yeah. And that solidified this fear that was so intense and so just primal in me yeah. that I would go away to nature camps and I would do all the nature camp stuff. And then there would be a day where we would go swim in the lake and I would not go in a natural body of still fresh water. I would not do it. 
I would not go in it. I would not go near it. I wouldn't walk in mud. Yeah. Anywhere I knew there might be leeches living. A girl got a leech on her leg in the lake at a nature camp I went to when I was nine. Mm-hmm. And I cried the rest of the day. Yeah. It wasn't even me. It didn't even get on my leg. I didn't even see it. I heard a counselor say they had to get a leech off of her leg. And I was inconsolable. Which, honestly, like, I, and I, I don't mean to, like, downplay anything. I'm saying, like, this is very valid. It probably would have been better for you if you had seen it, mm-hmm. because not seeing it is, like, way worse, oh, right? No, like, true. the thing, because your brain was almost definitely coming up with a horse leech, yes. and it almost definitely was not that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's miraculous. I didn't have any leech incidences growing up, because a major part of my childhood was, um, was tent camping out in this property that my uh my father's family owned in salem west virginia and a big part of that was one my father was not a good guardian so my sister and i spent like a large portion of our childhoods um roaming completely unattended on many many acres and miles of like mountainous woodlands you know and that is the whole thing i survived clearly i'm here and i did fine and i love nature so that's all great but um part of this was that there was like a, a creek or a that ran by the property where we tent camped and we would often in the creek, like swim down slash hike down to like the swimming hole farther on down. So we spent a lot of our time in this creek and the surrounding like bodies of water that it fed to and from. And it's like actually (laughs) literally insane that we didn't suffer more ill from this as children. Cause I never really ended up with any sort of Mm -hmm. major catastrophe and by all rights of nature and the universe, I should have. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I continue to have a fear of leeches to this day, even though I know they're much smaller in Mm -hmm. the sphere of the world that I live in. I, there, I am so troubled by them. And it was also, it didn't help that around this same time I was reading a series of unfortunate events. Yeah. And I happened upon the lacrimose leeches in the Mm -hmm. third book. I remember when the film came out, mm-hmm. going to see it in the theater with my family and still knowing what was coming. But when the scene with the lacrimose leeches happened, becoming, again, inconsolable. Oh, yeah. Leeches, much like um, quicksand and sticks of TNT, are things that cartoons led me to believe would be a much bigger problem in my day-to-day life than have mm-hmm. ever proven to be true. That's fair. So... The Mongolian deathworm has been the subject of quite a lot of research, actually. Apparently, I couldn't find the actual documentary, but it's referred to in a couple different sources. There is a short Animal Planet documentary about the Mongolian deathworm. Uh, apparently, it makes the claim that some people say it can grow up to 10 feet long, which is great. Uh-huh. Um, now, uh, it was also covered by the mystery show Destination Truth in 2006, um, there have been a lot of other researches, researches, researchers that have covered it. Um, there's a Czech cryptozoologist named Ivan McCurley, McCarroll, um, M-A-C-K-E-R-L-E. He um, has covered it multiple times. He had an expedition in 1990, 1992, and 2004. And he wrote about it in his 1987 book, which has a Czech title I'm not going to try to read. Um, but he says, It travels underground. Its movement can be detected from above via the waves of sand that it displaces. I like the idea that you would mount an expedition to go find a 10-foot worm, find nothing, and go back several more times. Just in case. Um, Just in case I missed out on seeing this 10-foot worm. Yeah, after those expeditions, he's decided he thinks it's probably just a beast of legend. But, you know, uh, you never know. Um, People also do, as I mentioned, discuss the possibility that it is some sort of sand-dwelling, large Mm sand-dwelling snake, or just a sand-dwelling snake 
that size has been exaggerated over time. Totally. But especially given the range of the Mongolian deathworm's size, because the idea of seeing a two-foot-long snake in the desert is not that weird. Yeah, definitely not. Not even seeing a five-foot-long snake in the desert. Mm-hmm. So, and also... If we talk about the idea of it spitting venom, that's also not unheard of in snakes. Spitting cobras are a thing. There are plenty of mm. other species of snakes that are known to spit venom. Of course, it's not a corrosive acid that kills you on contact and takes down a camel. But So people, there is that. But people exaggerate things over time. And it's worth acknowledging the fact that people have a tendency to do that. Oh, definitely. Because what's a more interesting story when you go back and tell your friends about your trip into the desert? I saw a snake and it spat at me and then nothing happened? Or I saw a 10-foot worm take down a cow um, and then it shot lightning out of its body? <laughs> I mean, I know which one of those would definitely hook my interest. Exactly. So. Oh, also I should mention that according to the Animal Planet documentary that was referenced by one of my sources, that was referenced by that'smags.com, but the link to said documentary just took me to the Animal Planet website and the, mm-hmm. there was no actual video there. So I don't know if that was a Aww. dead link or I don't know what happened there. They but knew too much. According, yeah, they knew too much. But according to that, uh, like regular worms, like earthworms, garden variety, but um, bunch, uh, earthworms, Ugh. it doesn't come out. It dwells underground except for when it rains, which is only during two months of the year oh, nice. in the region where it mm-hmm. is. So that would be more in keeping with the actual idea of a giant straight-up worm. Yeah, definitely. However, it's still worth noting that a worm, as we know it, probably could not survive in the desert because they rely on moisture so heavily. They do, it's true. And it would probably dry out and be a sad little husk. There's a secret Um, underground worm bar. I thought you were going to say like a water reservoir and it's a worm bar. I was going to and then my brain went watering hold and my brain went bar. You know that there are water bars? Like as a hipster thing. That's some just LA bullshit. Oh, it is. It is quite literally some LA bullshit. California has changed you. Um, yeah, there's a secret underground water bar for the worms. Um, also, really quickly, this is not a very, like, this is just a very brief aside. But you should know that in my research, I did mention this is a good name for a heavy metal band. And there is not a heavy metal band that I could find with the name Mongolian Deathworm. But there is a, a small town prog rock blues band called Mongolian Death Worm, spelled W-Y-R-M. Ooh, that's very good. Um, yes, it is uh, a progressive rock blues uh, funk trio. Wait, hang on a second. I'm extremely into that. <laughs> Headed by uh, J. Allen Balmer. There's an article I found on um, uh, NP- the NPR from Illinois State University page. I'm really um, into this. And they interviewed him about it, and he says that he likes to research urban myths, and he found out about the Mongolian death worm, and he says there are some rather large, hefty worms in the Mongolian desert, laughed Balmer, before conceding that despite a number of serious expeditions, this supposedly five-foot-long deadly creature has never been verified. It's a distinctive name that would make many a thrash metal band envious and has had its advantages. One of the things particular venues liked about the name is that it forced people to call them up and ask, what kind of music is it? Oh, that's so good. What's this guy's name? Um, His name is um, J. Allen Balmer. All right, J., listen. Listen to me, J. (laughs) If you're out there, if you're listening, um, or if you're a friend of J.'s and you're listening, put J. on the phone real quick. (laughs) On the phone. Okay, J., you there? Jake, buddy, listen, we gotta talk. <laughs> Call us sometime. Email us, cryptkeeppod at gmail.com. 
Seriously, dude. Guest spot waiting for you. Yeah, seriously. Okay. Come um, play a live house set on the Cryptid Keeper <laughs> podcast. Mongolian death Deathworm. Um, his bandmates are Michael Hill and Todd Asper. Uh, their label is limiting as blues, funk, and even jazz creep into their songs. As Balmer often says, sometimes many or all of those sounds end up in the same song. We'll do some Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. We do some Jimmy stuff, he said, referring to high-profile prog rock names. But we also have a samba, and at the end of the samba part, Todd does a drum solo that evolves to a fusion tune that was really done by Billy Cobham. Yes! <laughs> I love these guys. Ah! Um, apparently they play in Chicago a lot. Um, and yeah, I'm, I love them. They're having a, they seem to be having a good time. Chicago they, live show when? Addison. I know, honestly. Oh my god, they were in downtown Bloomington. Was it Bloomington, Illinois or Bloomington, Indiana? If this is from an Illinois publication, I think Bloomington, Illinois. I I lived there. Yeah, anyway. um, Yeah, they played at Fat Jacks. I've been to Fat Jacks. Okay. Well, we're going back. Okay, yeah, we'll go. So anyway, that was just a little little sidebar. I found that in my research and it made me very happy because I've been saying since I first heard of the Mongolian Death Worm that it sounded like a band name. Mm -hmm. Now, what I never could have anticipated was that it would be a band that did prog rock blues jazz fusion. Uh, prog rock, jazz, blues, fusion, folk, funk, right? right? And some samba. And some samba. Well, what if, look, I know this is really reaching in terms of established Mongolian deathworm canon, mm-hmm. but what if that's the kind of music he likes? I bet it is. What if, if you want to like snake charm the Mongolian deathworm, <laughs> you play some of that, that, that fusion, that good fusion music? Oh my give god. Give him that fusion brew. There is, and <laughs> keep going. There is an old episode of The Simpsons, like a really old episode. Uh-huh. Um, and the premise of this episode is that it's Springfield's local, like, whacking day. Are you familiar with this episode of The Simpsons? I have no idea what you're talking about. It's insane. There's this episode of The Simpsons where the premise is that it's whacking day. And whacking day is this town holiday that Springfield celebrates every year mm-hmm. where everyone in the town gets sticks or clubs and they whack all the snakes they can find. <laughs> oh! It's insane. But the the conclusion of this episode is that Bart and Lisa basically endeavor to save all the snakes. And the way they do this is by placing, like, subwoofer speakers face down on the ground and playing the lowest, like, vibrations they can find to, like, lure all the snakes into their home so that all of the snakes will be in the Simpson family residence and not outside and therefore can be saved. But um, this sequence and what's so great about it is Uh that the way they do this is by playing Barry White. (laughs) Oh, my God. And so there's this great sequence where they're listening to, like, very smooth Barry White music and all the snakes Mm -hmm. just come, like, rushing into their home. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying, basically, is that I think we need to play some Mongolian death worm through the speakers Mm -hmm. um, in the middle of the desert. Oh, of course. To get the Mongolian death worm to come out and play. Oh, absolutely. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I should say that some some places specify or sort of um, talk about a little bit the width of the worm, but a lot of places it's not specified. It's just the length, right? So um, here's the thing. The width of the worm is not a phrase that I love. But here's the thing. Okay. I talk about the, like, so if the, if the width is not specified and just the length is specified, mm-hmm. we don't actually know how, like, it, it's supposed to resemble a human intestine a little bit. So, yeah, like, let's talk about the absolute size of the lad. So here's the thing. I was, uh, while you were talking about that Simpsons episode, uh-huh. if anyone heard me gasp quietly in horror, uh, it's because I found on todayifoundout.com that South African earthworms can grow as large as 22 feet long. Uh. The average length being about six feet long. The largest one ever found 22 feet long was found on a roadside in 1967. So here's the thing. 
Oh god, I'm shaking. Yikes. Um, there's a giant earthworm in Australia, the giant Gippsland earthworm of Australia. Um, grows about three feet long on average, but can stretch up to 12 feet. What? <laughs> and weighs about 1.5 pounds. I'm going to pee my pants. Oh my god. It can be up to 12 feet long and only weighs a pound and a half? Because it's probably thin. It's long. That's terrifying. That's, That's actually so worse. There's another kind found. The North Auckland worm in New Zealand grows about four to five feet long and glows. What? So anyway, my point is... No, you don't get to bury the lead like that. No. No, not on my couch, not in my home. You tell me how this worm glows and you tell me now. It's a, it's a big species of glow worm. You can go to, if you would like to go to the Waitomo Glowworm Caves in New Zealand, you can. You can go see the glowworms in the Waitomo Glowworm Caves. They're bioluminescent. That's amazing. So anyway, my point is, there are confirmed species of worms, scientifically acknowledged confirmed mm -hmm. worms, that are almost as weird as the Mongolian deathworm, and certainly as large. Incredible, honestly. So... I would like to go ahead and say, I said that it might be a snake, but um, it is entirely possible that the Mongolian death worm exists and is maybe a little exaggerated, but is, in terms of its abilities, mm -hmm. but is a giant worm. Now, here's the thing I would like to posit. Uh-huh. Maybe, now maybe the Mongolian death worm is all of the above things. Or maybe, maybe there are two different creatures being equated to each other mm -hmm. in the Gobi Desert. Maybe there's a giant species of worm. As established, there are, there are known species of worms that can get up to easily seven feet in length. So maybe there's a giant species of worm that dwells in the Gobi Desert and only comes out when it rains, because that's the only time they can survive there. Sure. And then maybe there's also a species, a large species of venom-spitting snake in the Gobi Desert that's unconfirmed, particularly if it has the color pattern of a worm. And when they merge, Voltron-style, they make an incredible creature that defies explanation. And that's the Mongolian deathworm. Well, no, I was going to say there are things called worm snakes that have the coloration of worms. They're pretty little, but oh, so those are snakes. There are snakes that, if you Google worm snake, you can mm -hmm. find there are snakes with the coloration of earthworms. So there's the possibility of a snake with this kind of coloring that is large and perhaps venom, like spits venom. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a possibility. I would also mention um, the Czech cryptozoologist I mentioned, um, Ivan, I forgot his last name. I forgot his last name, Um He mentioned being able to track it by the marks in the sand, mm -hmm. which sounded to me, ripple marks in the sand sound less like something underneath the surface and more like the marks that, for instance, a sidewander leaves yeah, when they move across sand. Um, so that would be my personal theory, uh, is that maybe those are two things that got conflated. However, if it's more fun for you to pretend there's a giant venom spinning worm that also uses electricity to attack people, then you can totally keep believing that. I mean, that's definitely more fun. <laughs> also... <laughs> According to uh, according to uh, one of my sources, it uh, I think this one was from yes, this is on the National Geographic. Uh, it supposedly has spikes on both ends. Oh, there's no supposedly. This is National Geographic. That's fact. You're right. So I would like to tell you some facts about it according to the National Geographic.com. Uh, NationalGeographic.com. It has no discernible head or tail. It has spikes on both ends. National so which Ge is which? National, so here's the thing. National Geographic is legally not allowed to lie about nature. Yeah, so here's the thing. If we don't know which end is which, mm -hmm. how do they know it is spitting venom and not a 
releasing it in another way. Um, hi, I hate it, but also I'm assuming that's where the teeth are. Doesn't it have like teeth? Well, it kind of sounds like from this description, like it has those teethies on both ends. I think when it says spikes, that's what it means. Oh. At least that's what I'm assuming. I thought the spikes would be like external and the okay. teeth would be internal. Well, this one says it has no discernible head or tail. The National Geographic's legally not allowed to lie. Well, heck, you got me there. Uh, there's a science fiction story about the death worm uh, that is called uh, Olgoy Korkoy. That was published in 1944, which is uh, published by Ivan Efremov, who was a Russian scientist and science fiction writer. Um, but these are just... And the second two facts on this page are just worm facts. They're not specific to the Mongolian death worm, which delights me. So although most worms live in the soil, some have adapted to live in the sand. So there is... Something for this. The giant beach worm is found in the sandy beaches of southern and eastern Australia and can grow up to 2.5 meters long. So it's also Whoa. the right size. This has been Declan's worm facts. Yeah. All right. Um, they spend most of their time under the sand, only ever surfacing to feed. Mm-hmm. I, For some reason, feed versus eat is so much more troubling. Oh, yeah. Feed evokes, is way worse. It evokes something dark. Yeah. Um, so earthworms lack the ability to see or hear. They have a highly developed sense of touch and the chemical sense of taste and smell. They have no lungs and breathe through their skin and use a circulatory system to carry the oxygen and carbon dioxide around their body. This allows them to grow to quite large sizes in some countries. Yeah, so, it do. So I read that, and that's what made me Google world's biggest earthworm. Oh, boy. And <laughs> that was a mistake. And that was a mistake because now when I go to sleep tonight, that's all I'll be able to think about. Oh, so Alex, no. I'm staying over at Alex's tonight. So if you hear a knock <laughs> on your door in the middle of the night and it's me, I can't sleep. <laughs> and you're just going to come to be like, hi, excuse me. Can we talk about worms? I'm thinking about worms. Now, what if you hear a knock on your door in the middle of the night and you open it and it's not me, but it's a 10 foot long worm. It's a worm? <laughs> <laughs> but it's a worm. I mean, that would be wild. I mean, yeah, it is. Um, but also another potential creature that the Mongolia deathworm could be, and this is again, unfortunately, discarding all the fun bits like the mm-hmm. electricity and the venom spitting, but it could be a worm lizard. A um, worm have lizard. you seen a worm lizard? I'm going to show you some pictures. Worm lizards are a group of usually legless squamates. Uh, There are over 180 species of worm lizards. They have long bodies, reduction of or loss, completely loss of limbs, and rudimentary eyes. So they're almost blind. They have little teeny kind of useless legs or no legs at all. Um, And they have usually a most species have a pink body and they have scales arranged in rings, which gives them that kind of segmented look. That oh, gotcha. I see what you're talking about. So they're not snakes because they have often vestigial armies, mm-hmm. little arms. Here's a real cute one. Oh, that's in friend. They're really funny looking. I really they like are. them. They are. They're so long. I really like worm lizards, especially the ones that have arms, because I'm just going to tell you right now, they just look like the front of a lizard. And then just so much extra body. Yeah, it's like, you know when, um, if you ever played Solitaire on, like, a Windows 98 <laughs> computer, and when you finish the game, like, the cards bounce all over the screen and, like, trail forever? <laughs> it's that. Someone did that to a lizard. And now there's just, I think you put a little too much body on your lizard there, friend. <laughs> yeah. No, this is how he's meant to look. He looks perfect just the way he is. I mean, he is perfect. He is perfect he just is the way he is. He is a perfect little buddy. Absolutely. 
Um, there's also the possibility of it being a sand boa. Those are some of the species that get tossed around. But then, of course, when you toss in the electricity and the venom. Now, here's a theory I did not see come up anywhere, but I think it's still look. Sorry. <laughs> I accidentally clicked on a picture of Yvonne McCarroll, and <laughs> my whole screen was just a picture of a very serious man with a mustache. So I glanced over, and she's like, now, one big theory is, and I'm like, if you're going to tell me it's that human man. So, no. A theory that I have not seen anywhere, so I might be the first person to come up with it. If I'm not, please don't tell me. Let me live in this blissful ignorance. So, consider something with me, okay? Okay. Considering. It looks like a snake or a worm. Uh Uh-huh. It has electricity powers. It does. Perhaps this is some sort of land-dwelling electric eel. Oh. Land-dwelling electric eel. Land-dwelling electric eel is another good band name, in mm-hmm. case you were wondering. Um, it would explain its worm-like appearance. It would. But it would also explain its electricity powers. Now, do we have any sort of evidence to support the idea that an eel can be land-dwelling? I am Googling land-dwelling eel. There are no land-dwelling eels that I can see. Um, but evolution is wild, and there have been fish that start to move onto the land. It's true. So... Um, No, I think more what I'm saying mm -hmm. is, if it dwells on land, I think that prevents it being an eel, but I think it does start... Like, I'm not denying that this creature you are describing could exist. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is, I don't think it's an eel. I think you get to name it, because you're the cryptozoologist who discovered slash uncovered this creature. Okay. So what are you going to call it? The Ivan McCurl. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it all comes full circle, baby. Um, so anyway, I would like to hop over to Carl Schuker's website. Okay, let's do <laughs> he it. He makes many appearances on the show. He, he is does. A, Good old Carl. Carl is a cryptozoologist, a media consultant, and science writer. He's one of the best-known cryptozoologists in the world, according to his own website. Uh-huh, um, amazing. We just talked about him on the Devil Bird episode. We did. Well, he has a lot of opinions about a lot of different creatures. Um, he also has, has a really some great really, photo of himself he in the also has, uh, He also has what is clearly a Photoshop of himself onto ju- the Jurassic Park cover yeah. um, on his website. And I'm not even, I'm not going to say it's bad. It just is, it is what it is. Well, it's just that's his head, but clearly not his body. And the header is, please come in. I've been expecting you. And the caption to that picture is, welcome to Shuker Nature. Enjoy your visit. Beware of the raptor. So he's got a sense of humor, you okay, know? Okay, that's cute. So he's got this piece on the Mongolian deathworm. This illustration, I'm showing you this by Philippa Foster. I uh-huh. might use this one when I tweet the piece, when I oh, tweet the episode do. out. It's a little rendering of how the worm burrows and how it spits its poison. You um, know that Tumblr would censor that photo, right? Oh, it would. It is. Here's the thing. They have decided to opt for the classic earthworm pink as opposed to the previously described reddish coloring. And there's no way to put this. That is, there's no other way to put this. It looks decidedly phallic. Yeah, it does. It lends a specifically phallic it overtone looks, to the photograph. It looks quite a lot like a gooey duck. Uh, <laughs> but so much worse. Because it has a little flowering tip that yeah, just expands. Yeah, because it's to segmented. If gooey ducks were segmented, that would be so bad. terrible. So anyway, there's some great history of the investigation of the Mongolian deathworm on his site here. Um, and he talks specifically, first of all, about my man, Ivan. Um, my favorite thing about the way he just, this little entry on Ivan is he writes, Ivan, I'm saying McCarroll, I don't know if that's correct, but Ivan McCarroll, and then in parentheses next to it is if there's going to be further information, just written again is Ivan McCarroll. 
What? As if that's his nickname. Like, Ivan McCurl. Ivan McCurl. Ivan. Ivan McCurl. <laughs> Ivan. Ivan McCurl. McCurl. So, uh... <laughs> In the 1920s, apparently, this wasn't really, this creature wasn't really talked about outside of its native area. Sure. Um, and it spread into the sort of Western cryptozoological canon thanks largely to this particular man, Ivan Ivan McCurl. Um, he was one of the most prominent voices to write about it. He had mm-hmm. his first exposition, exposition, my lord, his first expedition where he exposed the legend of the, haha, <laughs> I caught up. It was uh, in June and July of 1990. And then that started to, once he did it, everyone went, oh, what's Ivan up to? And maybe I should check that out. Oh, what a trendsetter. Yeah. So he was kind of a trendsetter for some people. He collected a very impressive dossier of information on the death worm <laughs> based on eyewitness reports and anecdotal evidence, which he made Made freely available uh, to other cryptozoologists, and Carl uses in his writings and summarizes it as follows. So this is like the comprehensive, basic overview, according to this cryptozoologist, of the Mongolian awesome. death Love it. Its local names, um, which are not in a language I'm familiar with the pronunciation rules of, I'm very sorry. Um, I'm going to just attempt um, Algoi Korkoi and Alergorhai Horhai translate as intestine worm, because like I said before, it's a mysterious sausage shaped. Oh, Olgoi Kurkoi was the name of that sci-fi story you were yes. talking about earlier. Cool. Okay. Um, yes. And it measures, uh, according to this initial description, 1 to 1.6 meters in length, and was as thick as a man's arm with no discernible scale. Now, how much does that man work out? Is the man in question swole? Yeah, that does change a lot of things. How swole... How swole is the man in question? And what part of his arm? We talking biceps? We talking forearm? Ivan! Answer! Ivan, my guy? So anyway, it has no discernible... Ivan, if you've got time to type your name twice, you've got time to answer some questions. (laughs) Okay, it has no discernible scales, mouth, or any eyes or recognizable sensory organs. It's truncated at both ends. But according to some accounts, also bears a series of long pointed structures at its tip. So there's those teethies we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, the teethies. Or the spikes, according to some versions. So it remains under the sands during the year, surfacing during the two hottest months, June and July, after a downpour of rain. So there are a lot of, um, locals claim it can be found in association with this particular plant, um, the halozylon Amandendron, which is a yellow-flowered desert shrub, and its roots are parasitized by um, this cigar-shaped plant. It's Cynomorium songaricum. Oh my goodness. Help. And so those plants seem to appear in conjunction with it, but there's not any explanation of what its relationship to those is, Hmm. Um, like if it eats them or anything like that. But there is theory that... there. I did see this pop up in a couple places, that there's theory that it's somehow either is affected by the pollen of those yellow flowers or eats them and that's why its venom is yellow. But that okay, seems like kind of a that seems like kind of a stretch to me. Yeah, that seems like a bit It's like I hope you warmed up first because that's quite a stretch. But uh anyway, those are the sort of basics of the death worm. Now My assumption was just going to be that like there is um some relationship between the roots of the plant and the conditions that the worm would need to survive. Like, either they fix nitrogen in some way that mm-hmm. the worm needs, or 
Like, maybe they... Exactly. Yeah. That's what I would think as well. This particular entry... Provides something the worm needs for respiration, Carl, would be my guess. Yeah, Carl does not go into any more detail with the plants. <laughs> um, but that is something that could, if you would like to on your own time, look into. Um, I chose to sort of let that slide for now because I wanted to... And I will get into some sightings in a minute. Oh, okay. We're about to kind of start getting into them right now, actually. <laughs> Um, there's so much to talk about with the Mongolian death worm. I haven't even talked about the documentary yet. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> it's okay. I'll do a very brief talk about the documentary because don't worry. The documentary still doesn't exist yet. Oh, okay. Um, good. The documentary has been being made <laughs> since around 2009. It's been waiting for us to finish it. Um. This whole time. Yeah. Retrocausality is wild. So anyway, <laughs> um, Carl refers a little bit here to a an account by one of the guides that um, that helped our man Ivan mm-hmm. out. So right here, nomadic herders inhabiting the southern Gobi tell of how entire herds of camels have been killed instantly merely by walking over a patch of sand concealing a death worm beneath the surface. So that's where some of the electricity stuff comes into play. Oh, it's yeah. like from under the sand, it electrocutes its prey. Nice. That's wild. And then it can just come out and feast. So, moreover, one of Ivan's local guides recalled how, many years earlier, a geologist visiting the Gobi as part of a field trip was killed when he began idly poking some sand one night with an iron rod. So, a conductor. Interesting. As he did so, he abruptly dropped to the ground, dead for no apparent reason. But when his horrified colleagues rushed up to him, they saw the sand where he had been poking the rod suddenly began to churn violently, and from out of it emerged a huge, fat... Death worm. Uh, Love it. What does electric guitar sound like? Like a like a mad woman making sounds with her mouth. Something like that. Yeah. Um, the metal rod is what brings. I think was probably one of the stories that brought electricity into the question because you have this conductive material being poked into the sand and then for seemingly no other means of contact with the worm, this guy mm-hmm. dying. So anyway, then he goes on to speculate uh, in this piece about the other potential animals that it could be, which I mentioned before. There's all the different possibilities, so I won't dive into those again. But it does talk about also the fact that this sort of creature appears throughout science fiction. Specifically, he name drops Dune in this piece. Oh. Um, there is the giant sandworm of Arrakis in the Dune novels. So, sandworms appear throughout uh, sort of science fiction. There's a movie, a Kevin Bacon movie called Tremors. I don't know if you have all have seen it. It's a really fun monster movie. It's very tongue-in-cheek. It's a sci-fi film from the 90s, and there's a giant desert worm in the United States. Nash, yeah. So it's And it's called Tremors. And there's also apparently a sci-fi original movie called Mongolian Deathworm that was made in 2010. Apparently, oh, nice. Apparently, it is not very good. Well, no, it's a sci-fi original movie. <laughs> Nice. No, um, we don't watch sci-fi original movies because we want them to be good. Okay, that's fair. That's not their target audience. Wait, I'm sorry. Do you don't, do you not think Sharknado deserves a Golden Globe? Oh, I didn't say that it doesn't deserve a Golden Globe. I just said it wasn't good. <laughs> doesn't mean it's not. You misunderstand me. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's fair. So I would like to um, really quickly now talk just very briefly about the documentary and then close with some sightings. So there's a documentary. A man named David Ferrier, uh, he's a journalist who supposedly has been making this documentary about the Mongolian death worm. And the last I could find about the documentary was an article in 2015 where David Ferrier said the documentary mm-hmm. is still being made. 
But the documentary has not been released, and I haven't really heard any information specifically about its future. But David Ferrier and his cameraman, Christy Douglas, uh, spent two weeks in Mongolia trying to verify the death worm's existence. This was in 2009 on Zealand, And Ferrier wouldn't say if the pair discovered evidence of the creature, as they were not revealing too much until the documentary was complete. Oh, come on. They recorded 30 hours of footage and spoke to people who said they'd seen it. He, uh, Ferrier said... As far as telling the story about the death worm, I'd say we were pretty successful in what we came back with, and we have definitely got a doco on our hands. So, (laughs) he talks a little bit more about it. He says, the story of the creature hasn't been told yet in any kind of factual way. It's always been crazy people out with flashlights on their heads looking for it. No one has got any facts down about it, and that's what this is going to do. He's hoping to produce a 90-minute documentary by the middle of next year. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, because this was 2009. Oh, buddies. Oh, David. Um, now, it should be noted, he he got some locals to talk to him, but in the Mongolian capital, Ulaanbaatar, no one had even heard of the death worm. But as they moved south toward the Gobi Desert, more and more locals knew about it. Now, here's the thing I just have to say real quick. Yeah. And this is, like, maybe a take that doesn't matter. It's a very, like, lukewarm take. Uh-huh. But one thing that, like, irritates me for reasons I really can't quite articulate uh-huh. is when cryptozoologists get really, like, angry about other cryptozoologists who quote-unquote like use like wear flashlights on their head and it's I'm like that's your whole field Mm -hmm. like what's your damage if you're not here to have fun what are you doing like Mm -hmm. I just I I mean I get it they're trying to distance themselves in order to legitimize themselves and they yeah they want to be distanced from the fringe I understand it's like being someone who studies UFOs but you don't want to be lumped in with like hollow earth people I get that but it's like at the same time that's your people yeah like you can't Especially... You're not going to win more bonus points with anybody who doesn't like cryptozoologists already by making yourself seem not like other cryptozoologists. Yeah, you you can't be like, I'm not like other cryptozoologists, I listen to the Beatles and don't wear pink. It doesn't... Yeah, exactly. And that, that's really what I'm getting at. The cute at. boy's not going to ask you to prom just because you put down other cryptozoologists. Right. It's like the only way for you to, like, lift your field up is by embracing the things about it that people who love cryptozoology for really love it. You know, like, mm-hmm. and why it's, are you doing and this? And it is okay to say that you don't buy into supernatural stuff and that you are specifically looking at it as a biologist. Yeah, or it's okay, okay to say, like, look, I haven't, I don't know what other people are saying with regards to Mongolian death room. This is our fact-based approach. Like, that's fine, but you don't have to be, like, a jerk. Well, we're not like other cryptozoologists. Like, it's just dumb, That's right? why your documentary is not out yet, David. Yeah, come on, David. So, in all seriousness, in 2009, they claimed it would be out by the following year. Then I found another article from 2015 where they said Farrier still says the documentary is coming. So, it's 2019. I don't know. Guess we'll see. Maybe this is the year we finally get, ten years later, Maybe. a Mongolian deathworm retrospective from David Barrier. Uh, I hope so. So anyway, I would like to share some sightings that I think are from an extremely reputable source from Mysterious Monsters, um, which is also called, is the header, the website URL is science-rumors.com. And then... <laughs> The header okay. of, So take this with a grain of salt or perhaps several grains of salt. Just don't put them on the worm. No. Um, that'll dry him out and it'll be very sad. So this is my favorite. Don't read the headline of this okay, piece. Okay, I'm not. I'm not. I'm top not. 10 Mongolian death worm sightings. Proof it is real. Oh, okay. <laughs> top 10 Mongolian death worm sighting. Proof is it real? <laughs> I love... Proof it is real. Proof it is real. This is my favorite. My favorite kind of headline in the whole world. Okay. 
One. First sighting of this deadly worm dates back to 1927, when American paleontologist Roy Chapman Andrews first saw the tail of the worm. He didn't believe it to be the tail and further researched to know about it. Um, there were locals who described this creature as, I said it already and I'm not going to try to pronounce it again, or the intestine worm. I'm going to read all of these like I'm a sensationalist uh, journalist. I love it. I love it. Because it. these are all like, not to be mean, but these are all basically National Enquirer headlines. Mm -hmm. Um and sometimes, you know, we just like to have a little fun on this show. We like to have a little fun here. We had that whole section where I talked about my pathological fear of leeches, so I think we should have a little fun now, Absolutely. since I had to reveal my childhood trauma to you. Yeah. Um, two, it is believed that they live deep in the Gobi Desert and hence cannot be viewed easily by others. This is a sighting that proves it's real. That's um, not. However, locals of Gobi Desert visiting the interiors of the desert say they have sighted a red creature that looks like the intestine. Three. Another expedition was conducted between 1946 to 1949 where they went deep inside to find out the existence of the Mongolian deathworm and compare their own sightings with the one described by locals. Yuri Orlov mentioned that he witnessed such a creature. And then there's no other, no, nothing else about what he said. Um, what? Number four. In the late 90s, Ivan McCarroll conducted many expeditions in the Gobi Desert with the hope of getting a glance at the deadly worm after listening about it from his Mongolian pupil. His expedition set a good example when something positive was found. Something positive was found. Number five. It is reported that most of the time it lives underground. However, in June and July, when it rains, it comes to the surface. Many locals have seen the Mongolian deathworm during that time. They believe that it can give electric shock to someone who is nearby. Number six. Another story is famous among the nomads that once a young boy was followed by the worm, and near his home, his dead body was found. It was believed that he died as he touched the worm. Looking at the trail on the sand, his family went to take revenge from the animal that did that, but they also did not return. <laughs> Sorry. Take revenge from the animal that did that. Killed their son. But they also did not return. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh because if that's true, it's very sad. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, number seven. In 2005, Richard Freeman, a cryptozoologist, conducted an expedition to find out if there exists Mongolian deathworm. They found out that a whole village was shifted from its position when villagers heard about the sighting of the venomous animal. The wording of that's a little wild, but I think what it's saying is when they heard about it, this entire village straight up moved to a new village. <laughs> oh my gosh. Which is a lot. Why don't we just take the village and push it somewhere else? So, eight. There were some sightings of the Mongolian deathworm during 2013 that even caught the camera. However, people believe that it is just a normal worm as it did not had red color. <laughs> it did not had red color. Nine. This is obviously I'm not like if this is written by somebody who English is not their first language. I I'm not trying to make fun of that. It's just like when I read it out loud in the voice, it sometimes catches me. Yeah, off I and it makes me laugh. Like this is not me being like ha ha ha. You had to learn another language and try to write it on the internet. I'm an ugly American. No, like it's it's more just like when you hear it in that voice, it's mm -hmm. like a lot. Um, Nine. During the 19th century, it is said that there were more sightings of this venomous worm that looked like a cow's intestine, difference being that it killed other living things. Mostly local nomads who used to go deep in the western Gobi Desert have seen this intestine-like worm. So number ten. In one of the expeditions by Freeman, their local interpreter told them that the incident that happened to another team of expeditors that traveled to Suji's home village. One of them was poking the sand with an iron rod, you heard this, mm -hmm. and then suddenly feels off. Upon reaching him, he was found dead. Others felt a sudden shake in the ground and then saw something round coming out of the sand. They ran with their life. Suddenly feels off. This is some Troom Troom energy. <laughs> it's really good. Um, so yeah, the Mongolian deathworm seems to be the most interesting and deadly thing that exists in the place. 
Wow, which place? <laughs> I would imagine they need Mongolia. <laughs> that would make sense, wouldn't it? Um, so anyway, I ended up having to skip a couple of the, of my sources because there's just a lot of actual, a lot of really fun stuff about the Mongolian deathworm. I wanted to close with that chaotic energy. Yeah, um, I'm, uh, I'm glad that we did. I'm, I'm glad that we got to revisit this beautiful, wild, majestic creature. Me too. And I was so heartbroken, uh, that we had to go without it last time, to be yeah. honest. And it's been a long, it's been a while. I think enough time that the winds have healed. I think so. Yeah. And we could come back to the Mongolian deathworm. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad it was seemingly enough time for you to have forgotten some of the details of the Mongolian deathworm. I death did. Worm. I really didn't remember any of the details. And you know, the thing is that I think that we have grown enough as podcasters in the year and some <laughs> change that we've been doing this Honestly. that like now it seems, uh, like this is in, in fairness to our audience, but in, um, like some harsh honesty to us, I think that this is probably a better version of the episode than we would have gotten from the one that we did, you Quite know, possibly all that time ago. Um, not that that one wasn't amazing. I remember some weird jokes about Pokemon and not really much else. I was just gonna say, I remember discussing that this thing might be a Pokemon. Yeah, I think that was, like, the main hook I feel like an electric worm, an electric worm makes sense as a Pokemon, as much sense as anything. So, you know, in a different version of this universe, in a different time, you got the Pokemon version of the Mongolian Deathworm episode. Peter B. Parker listened to the... Oh, wow. Awesome. I hope he did. I I hope he he does. (laughs) I hope he likes the podcast. And I hope he's listening, and I hope he knows that my number is no. I put my phone number on this podcast for a fictional character to call me. Um, so I would like you to do something for me, okay? A couple things. Mm-hmm. First of all, on a scale of one to ten, okay, one being bear sleeping peacefully on Aww. the floor at our feetsies, uh-huh. and ten being um, a Viking riding a tiger made of lightning in the middle of a thunderstorm. How hardcore is the Mongolian deathworm? Um, well, let's get one thing straight. Both of those things are pretty badass. Okay, but I meant like he's being gentle. Yeah. yeah. Um, I give the Mongolian deathworm a 12 out of 3 feet. <laughs> he has no feet. <laughs> he doesn't have any feet. No, but that was the thing. Remember, he's like 3 feet long and he stretches to 12 feet. Oh, no, that's terrible. True. Um, that is also badass. But no, I mean, he's definitely like on the 10 side yeah. of the scale, right? He's pretty hardcore. I would give him, uh, let's say, 9.8. A giant I wanna, worm. I don't want to use no. a whole scale. That's fair. A giant worm that spits acid poison and shoots you with electricity and then it eats you, I guess. Yeah. It eats you even though it doesn't have a, ma- a mouth. Oh, well. Okay. And this one goes to 11. <laughs> that's our hard rock joke that I didn't make yet. I told you these pop culture jokes weren't going to be good by the time that's we okay. got to the end of the episode. But there it is. Final um, tap. <laughs> two more things, actually. This is I was going to say one more thing. I a funny thing yeah. and then you know it's funny mm. and that makes me funny. <laughs> oh, perfect. That's what, that's what jokes are, right? That's what Family Guy taught me. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm going to get some hate for that. All right. Uh, so anyway, but it's fine. I don't care. Uh, two more things okay. to wrap this episode up. Um, one, one is, uh, this is a prompt for you. I haven't given you a prompt in a while. Um, I would like to know the chart topping heavy metal single from the band Mongolian Death Worm spelled W-O-R-M, not our prog rock. Um, trio. it's, it's definitely, um, I feel the earth move under my feet. <laughs> That's really rude of you. <laughs> That's, Carol King didn't die for that. She also <laughs> is not dead. Um, <laughs> She's also not dead yet. No, she's going to live forever. She's gonna live, that's true, because her music will live on forever mm-hmm, in our it's hearts. True. Um, also, and in the discography of Mongolian Death Worm. All right. So if you had to articulate your feelings about the Mongolian Death I need everyone to know, too, that that wasn't edited. That's how quickly I came up with that joke. It's good. There was no time cut out, just okay, so you know. Perfect. I'm glad that they all know that now. So, Alex. Yes. If you had to articulate your feelings about the Mongolian Death Worm into a sweet-ass, shredding guitar lick... How would it sound? 
Oh man, you're putting me on the spot here. That's like the whole nature of the beast. It's not like I really wanted to show off a guitar solo or anything. So I didn't just like I want you all to know that you're missing something like a huge element by not being able to see the facial expressions that go along with this. But I think I think you can still get the picture. So I think on that note, uh, I don't think this is a pettable cryptid in any way. <clears throat> oh, no. Um, Do not touch From the a boy. textural point, from a danger point, I just... Yeah, he's a danger boy for sure. It's also like a slippery, slippery, slimy worm boy. Someone Ooh. give me a t-shirt concept that's just a picture of the Mongolian death worm and the words danger boy under it. Because I like that. I want it now. I am also, I talked myself into like a weird leech fear <laughs> plays again and my oh, shoulders no. are like, my shoulders are next to my ears. It's okay. Well, um, we're going to wrap this one up. Okay. Uh, so, oh, nope. It's okay. Do you have anything more to say? I'm just going to do some additional announcements. I was just going to say like, thanks. Yeah, I also would like <laughs> okay, to say thanks, it. not only to you, Addison, oh. but to our composer, Andrew Giada, and to our sound wizard, Val Patron, as well as to the Lunar Light Network for being our podcast hosting site and cool studio family. I don't know what words I was planning on using for that <laughs> sentence, but there they are now. The Lunar Light Studio Network is a great little indie podcasting network where you can listen to a whole host of other excellent shows like Storyboard, Ink Tank, Ending Pending, The Good Boys Girls, Badvertising, and many others. They're all a lot of fun. Tin Pan Diddly Do. Tin Pan Diddly Do. They're all run by really, really fun and wonderful people uh, with a great focus on some diverse perspectives and some really, really excellent heartfelt homespun content. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find all of that stuff on LunarLightStudio.com? LunarLightHQ.com? I don't remember Time which one it is. Time to double check. If you Google Lunar Light Studio, it comes right up, is the thing. I will tell you, it is LunarLightStudio.com. That's what I thought. LunarLightStudio.com. You can find um, information on all of those shows, as well as information on our show, if you care to find it. There is also a Discord for Lunar Light Studio fans. Um, it's pretty wonderful. All the creators are in there all the time. It's a very chill, low-key space, and mm-hmm. that's all excellent. We love it. We love being a part of it. Um, we also, if you missed this announcement, uh, a Horror Borealis is now releasing to the public via the OneShot Network. So we are very excited to be a part of that family as well. Uh, you can find all of that content on the OneShot website, which again comes right up if you Google it. Does anybody use URLs now these days? I figure I just always like click on links or Google stuff. Nah, dude. We don't use URLs anymore. That's for oldsters. That's for old people. Um, um, but the OneShot Network is also amazing. A big thanks to James Damato for having us on his lovely podcasting coalition. Uh, yeah, we're glad and to be part of that family. You can also find Torre Borealis now by going to any podcatcher that you possess. I know it for a fact it's on iTunes and Google mm-hmm. Play and Stitcher, probably, probably yeah, Spotify, Stitcher. I'm not really sure, but it's on um, a bunch of those. Um, you can find it just about anywhere. And then patrons, do not fear. The entire backlog is still available to you, and you will still be a year ahead of the curve oh, on yeah. new episode Very releases. much more content for you than there is for the normies out here on iTunes. <laughs> Please don't ever say normies on our <laughs> podcast again. I shall do if my best to say normies on our promises. podcast again, I, I'm going to have to like bring back my scene bangs from middle school. Do it, you won't. <laughs> anyway, speaking of Patreon, we also have a whole host of bonus content that has gone up recently and that we'll be continuing to roll out for our Cryptid Keeper patrons, including a little holiday special we did right around Christmas called Hallmark, to where Addison and I um, complained about bad Christmas movies that we wasted our time on and distilled them into a convenient and compact format so you can waste significantly less of your time and yeah. still get the general effect. Um, we also have a series coming up that I don't think has released yet where Addison nope. reads me um, a fan fiction that she wrote a long time ago and we <laughs> chat about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
um, that that's upcoming. We also have some just bonus episodes on smaller, cuter, smaller, heavier cryptids that smaller, would not, heavier cryptids. that would not fit into their own full length episodes, but still mm-hmm. deserved some on the mic discussion time. Yeah, well, we're also probably going to try to fit in another movie night in January. Yes. Um, I think it's my turn. I think it's your turn because I, I did turn. Coraline. Right. Okay. So we'll try to fit another horror, uh, not necessarily horror, but they're usually scary-ish. Spooky. Movie night um, in January for our patrons, and uh, that'll be a lot of fun. Any other announcements from you? I don't think so. I think I think that's, that's all good. I think that's all we got. If you missed this announcement, we have a brand new logo, which you've probably seen in your podcatchers. That is by Nick Beecher, who did just a fantastic job, and we're so thrilled with it. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. As always. We hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. <laughs>